Jesus' name. I am Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, The Biblical Principles uh, Governing the Eyes. This is lesson number 22, and the focus of this lesson is the answer to this question. Why are we not seeing more sinners saved? Why? What is the reason that we're not seeing more people saved? Well, I have a question to answer that question. I'm going to answer a question with a question. Could it be because we are spending so much time doing the same things sinners are doing that they can't see any difference between us and them and therefore there's no conviction upon them when they're around us? And so they don't see and feel that we have something that they don't have in need? Is that possibly the answer? That we don't have time to pray for them so that the spirit of the love of God is on us and the spirit of conviction God of God is in us and works through us? Could it be that? Could it be? Is it possible that we are like Lot in Sodom who was vexed with the filthy conversation or the behavior of the wicked? For that righteous man was vexed in seeing and hearing. Uh, there, he saw what they did, and he heard what they did. He was living in Lot, at, at Sodom, excuse me. And even though he didn't personally directly involve himself in how they were living, what they were doing, he, his righteous soul, he, he vexed his own righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds, Second Peter chapter 7. Verses, back chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Is it possible we're like that? Is it possible that we're so immersed in Sodom that even though we can tell ourselves, well, I don't do that, and I don't talk like that. I remember I was in the sixth grade, and I was, uh, I was the only Pentecostal in my school, and I had a couple of boys that I, they were, for the most part, I guess, were good boys, but they were a couple of boys that I uh, buddied with at school, not any, not outside of school. We never had any chance to spend any time together, but I buddied with him at school, and, and uh, we'd play together on, uh, during recess, and we'd sit around the, we'd sit at the lunch table together. Well, uh, they had a tendency at times to tell stories that and talk about things that sixth-grade boys probably shouldn't, even though at that point in time, after at the beginning of puberty, it it happens. Okay, and uh, and I would sit there, and uh, I the stuff they would say was funny. It was not not good. It wasn't clean. It wasn't the kind of stuff I I knew that as a Holy Ghost filled person I should be involved with. But I I I sat there and. Uh, and laugh with them. I would laugh with them. And uh, then uh, one of them uh, used some language that I had been <laughs> sworn to by my dad that I would never talk like that. Uh, trust me. <laughs> he made it very clear to me as, as a young child that I would never repeat the words he did as a sailor. Uh, and so... Uh, one of them turned to me and said, uh, 
what's wrong? And I said, well, I, I'm not comfortable with you talking like that. And it was the first time I'd ever taken any kind of stand. And then they turned to me and shocked me, shocked me. Oh, yes, you do. You talk like that. We've heard you. Well, I knew for a fact. I knew because I feared my dad. And I knew if he ever heard that I had used that language, it didn't matter. He told me. I, he said, I was about three, and I had repeated some of his words that he used around the house without thinking about it because that's the way he talked at work and whatever. And um, he came home, and my mother said, guess what Chester said today? And so he did not spank me, but he said to me, you will never talk like that for the, again, the rest of your life. And I don't care how old or big you get. If I ever hear you talk like that, I will spank you. Well, I believed him. He made a believer out of me. So I knew I hadn't talked like that, but I was guilty by association in their minds. My association and the fact that I had been laughing along and didn't take a stand at all. I didn't have to judge them. I just could separate myself from that if I had to. I had to, do, I should have done something. But the problem was they got to talking about stinky stuff and the stink got on me, even though I never talked about it, but I'd laugh at it and I'd continue to sit there while they did that. And so here we are today, and we have a chance to associate with that stuff and whatever. Well, to this day, I have never used that kind of language. At 73 years old, I've never used that kind of language. But what happens if you sit and watch a video where they do? Or you read books where they use that kind of language? Are you saying that doesn't get in your mind or spirit? And so Lot vexed. His righteous soul. His righteous soul was vexed from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Why did he move out of Sodom? He couldn't. He was too invested in Sodom. And he had children that had uh, married people from Sodom. And now he had grandchildren who were born in Sodom. He was way too invested in Sodom to move out of Sodom, but he continued, continued with his soul being vexed. Now, now get this, his, his difference in their lifestyle was so unobserved by them that when the two angels showed up at his house to deliver him before God poured out judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, that they so did not differentiate the the difference between him and them. This crowd of men came to his house and demanded that he let those two men, that's what they appeared to be, was men, they were angels, out to them so that they could rape them homosexually. That was what was going on. And... The, the, the laws or the expectations of the host to protect his guests was so great that as despicable as it sounds, Lot offered his two virgin daughters to the mob of men 
to do with as they please, but please don't dishonor me and my house by demanding these men to do with their bodies as you choose. And they turned down the girls. And if the angels hadn't blinded the eyes of this mob and they dispersed because they didn't couldn't see where they were anymore, couldn't find people had to lead them away, they would have stormed Lot's house. And he lived there. And they couldn't tell the difference. He, they, they didn't see enough. His difference was lived behind closed doors. And while he didn't do what they did and talk like they did, he worked among them and lived among them and acted like they did. Now, I'm not talking about us being judgmental of people. I'm talking about us being who we're supposed to be enough that people can see a difference. Because remember again from the last lesson, Jesus saw the multitude. He had compassion on them because they were, they were fainting. Their life was so full of despair and hopelessness and so directionless. They were scattered in every direction without focus because they didn't have a shepherd providing direction. It is not the will of God for us to go around as Christians with some haughty attitude of us being better than everybody else. I, the only difference between me and everybody else is the grace of God is at work in my life, and I'm allowing it to be. I can't take any credit for the way I am. I can't look down on somebody else and say, look at me, look at you like the Pharisee did in the, in the Scripture. I can't do that. You can't do either and have a right attitude and spirit. But if I live in his presence and I live a life that is that is clearly belonging to him, the world will see it. They will know it. It is hard to keep the inside of our cup clean for God to use if most of what is poured into it is unclean. I'm going to read that again. It is hard to keep the inside of our cup clean for God to use it if most of what we pour into that inside of our cup is unclean, worthless, useless, evil, idolatrous. When we walk with God rightly, including the guarding of our eyes, it brings conviction upon sinners. David said in Psalms 51, verses 10 through 13, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Listen to what happens when we, when these things happen in our lives. When we seek God, focus on Him and His Word, give ourselves to Him in prayer, and for Him to use us as His conduits in this world. Here's what happens. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. I'm going to become a home Bible study teacher, and people are going to be saved. If you do these things in me, create, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And if that is, if that defines my spiritual condition, then, then I will teach transgressors thy ways 
and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Now, am I involved in teaching the lost? Am I involved in seeing sinners converted? If not, then here's something I might need to pray and pray urgently and sincerely. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. How did my heart get dirty? Well, I must be looking at something that's let some dirty stuff in there. Renewing me a right spirit. I need to be praying that. If sinners, if I'm not involved with sinners being saved, I need to pray this. I need to pray this. Something's gotten off with my spirit. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Have I fellowship with other things so much that I don't even realize that his spirit is waning in me, that I don't sense him like I used to, that I'm not as sensitive to him as I used to be. I don't hear his voice as much, not because he's not talking, but because I can't hear as well. Have I lost the joy of my salvation? The joy. Have I, do I no longer delight in him, in my relationship with him? He's no longer the joy of my life. And I don't feel supported, defended, strengthened by his spirit and by his grace. Because if these things are true in my life, I'm going to be involved with the lost. And if I'm not involved with the lost, then I must be doing things that sinners are doing. How can I, <laughs> how can I have passion to see the lost saved and brought out of stuff that I'm fellowshipping in and with? How can I have conviction? How can I feel how desperately they need to be saved because eternity is forever if I'm doing the stuff they're doing? Let's go, uh, let's read another passage. Isaiah 33, I'm going to start with verse 13. Hear ye that are far off what I have done and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh up, uh, he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. He shall place, his place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Uh, bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Oh my. Before I comment, let me read one more translation that might be a little bit easier to follow in today's English. The New Living Translation. Listen to what I have done, you nations far away, and you that are near. Acknowledge my might. The sinners in Jerusalem shake with fear. Terror seizes the godless. Who can live with this devouring fire, they cry. Who can survive this all-consuming fire? Those who are honest and fair, who refuse to profit by fraud who stay far away from bribes and who listen refuse to listen to those who plot murder, who shut their eyes to all enticement to do wrong. 
These are the ones who will dwell on high. The rocks of the mountains will be their fortress. Food will be supplied to them and they will have water in abundance. Your eyes will see the king in all his splendor and you will see a land that stretches into the distance. In January of 2016, the Holy Ghost spoke to me and said, I am passing a sword down through the body of Christ. I'm separating the religious from those that want a relationship with me. I'm separating those who are willing to be traditional apostolics and hunger for nothing more than that. Traditional Pentecostals, excuse me, and hunger for nothing more than that from those that want to be biblically apostolic. I am dividing. I am dividing those who are content fellowshipping with this world and yet still attending church from those who want to be separated from the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and who want to be focused on their relationship with God. These verses that I've just read from Isaiah, what what a promise. Is the reason there's not more conviction in our world? Is there's not enough difference between the people of God and the world so that they can feel and see the difference? And be convicted by that difference. And be drawn to God. Is that the reason? For sinners to be convicted of their sins, they must be able to recognize a clear distinction in lifestyle between believers and themselves. For Christians to, for sinners to be converted of their sins, they must be able to recognize a clear distinction in lifestyle between believers and themselves. If Christians are engaged in some of the same unwholesome leisure activities that sinners indulge in, then the sinner has a right to ask the question, what's the difference? What's the difference between you and me? The Holy Ghost, I re- the, the church I received the Holy Ghost in was in Jacksonville, Florida, back in 1958, the Sunday after my 12th birthday. There was a family in that church named the Wolf family. And, uh, Sister Wolf was uh, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. Brother Wolf was not. But Brother Wolf was as faithful to church as any uh, any saint in that place. Never came to the altar in the three years I was in that church. He never once came, came to the altar. He was he, he would do anything the pastor wanted him to do. He was faithful with his tithes, but he was not Holy Ghost filled and never made a mood to pray. Never. Good guy, good man. As, as submitted to the pastor as there was anybody in the building. Good man. And, uh, one of my first girlfriends was his daughter. And so I spent a little time around that family. And so he was a really good guy. He didn't live two lives. He lived, uh, <laughs> there were people in that church that didn't live as good a life as this man did. But he wasn't baptized in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, several years later, uh, a new pastor came to that church and that he had been an evangelist. And so the church board asked him to come and be a pastor. He said, I will come. I, I, I can't give you the answer to that now. I will come for six months as an evangelist and I will preach here for six months. At the end of that six months, I will let you know whether or not, uh, I will stay on as your pastor. So they agreed. And so for six months, this man, 
preached as an evangelist to that church. He didn't preach any pastoral message. He preached about sin and salvation. And he preached about repentance and, and, and coming to, to God. He preached and preached and preached. One service near the end of that six-month period, one particular service, I believe it was a Sunday night, if I remember correctly, Brother Wolf without anybody asking him. People didn't even bother to get him to come to the altar. There were, in fact, people that were coming to that church didn't even know he was. He didn't have the Holy Ghost, wasn't baptized in Jesus' name. There were people who didn't even know that. But all of a sudden, one night, all on his own, he got up out of his seat, came down to the altar, repented of his sins, got the Holy Ghost, got baptized. Someone asked him, the person telling me this, asked him, Brother Wolf, why, after all these years of coming to church, why did you suddenly decide now was the time to get saved? He said, I don't mean to be offensive to anybody, but I'm going to tell you why. Because for all these years, I never saw that much difference between me and the people coming to this church. But when this preacher started preaching about repentance and getting closer to God, and people began to repent, they began to change. And the more they repented and the more they changed, the more of a distance and difference there became between them and me. And when that difference kept getting bigger, I began to realize I'm not saved. And so finally, tonight, the conviction got so strong that I had to move. I could not continue to just sit there. I wonder, I wonder. Is this really what's going on in our lives? Is this what's going on in our churches? Is this the reason we're not seeing more sinners saved? Is this the reason why people can come sit on our seats as visitors and never make a move? Because there's no conviction. And the conviction is not a product of the preacher preaching scary messages. The conviction against sins in a body is not because... The preacher is is uh, threatening them with hell all the time. That's not where conviction comes from. Conviction comes when there's an obvious difference. And I don't mean outward difference. There's a lot of people that have an outward difference don't have any inward difference at all. But a, a recognizable difference in attitude and spirit and love and kindness and devotion and whatever between that and the sinner, where the sinner may not understand that difference. He may not, he may not be able to tell you what the difference is, but he feels the, the difference. He feels the difference. There's a spirit of conviction there. A spirit of conviction. There's a spirit of conviction there. And because of that spirit of conviction, They repent. I can confess my sins and be forgiven out of fear. I don't want to be lost, so I sin. So I obey the scripture that says, if I would confess my sins, he's faithful and just forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. But repentance requires conviction. And repentance is a change of a change of mind and a change of direction. It's not just confessing and being forgiven, but it is change. But I will not pray 
for the gift of repentance. I will not let God give me the gift of repentance and truly repent and change unless there's conviction. I, I wonder, I wonder if the reasons those that are living in homes where their children are not saved or they're living in homes where their spouse is not saved or at least not walking with God like they need to or, or uh, the parents are not saved. I wonder if, if those that are living in homes with the unsaved, I wonder if the reason those people are not saved isn't because you, uh, you're not witnessing to them. Now, the only people that you truly can only win through lifestyle evangelism is your family. You can't preach to your family every day and get them saved. I don't mean to be offensive, and I'm not dishonoring my mother, but I live with a mother like that. I had a brother who was didn't follow what she was teaching, and she preached at him almost every day. She was holy, hanging hell over his head, and yet he heard her gossip. He heard her talk about the preacher. Hello? He heard all that. He watched that. He watched the inconsistency. Oh, no, outwardly, boy, she was, she had it. But her, her spirit wasn't always right. Her attitude wasn't always right. He watched that. He was very smart, very observant. He watched that. He didn't want what she had. What she had was never enticing enough to him. It was never inviting enough. It was never salt enough to cause him to be thirsty for what she had. It wasn't. And the Bible says the church is the salt of the earth. Partaking of salt should make you thirsty. If the people living in that house where there are sinners present, kids that are wandering away from God, or kids that don't have any interest in God, if, if that's the case, the salt's not working. If the, if the, if the salt has lost its savor, so the question, if you want your family to be saved, you don't get them saved by harping on them. You don't get them saved by shaming them. You get them saved by getting closer to God than you've ever been in your life. Being more committed to the Lord than you've ever been in your life. So that conviction from the Lord, not from you, from the Lord, will come in that house. If I'm the one judging, and I'm the one accusing, and I'm the one shaming, and I'm the one threatening with hell, then they can resent me. But if I'm only loving and caring and praying and the spirit of conviction comes into the house, then this is between them and God. And something's going to happen. They're either going to move out of the house because they can't stand the conviction, or they're going to submit to the conviction. Which is it? Which is it? I can't expect my unsaved loved ones to listen to the preacher and be saved by his messages. If... We're having preacher for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I can't expect that. And I can blame it on anybody I want. But there's no conviction in the house. I say I'm a Christian, but my attitude stinks. How in the world can people be saved? Obviously, we participate in many of the same wholesome activities that sinners also do for enjoyment. There are things that the world does that are not wrong for us to do. Eat. <laughs> we go to various restaurants. 
that other people eat in. The world eats in those restaurants. And it's good food. And we go there. There's other things that the world does. It's not bad. It's not wrong. And we do that. That's not our problem. The difference between the sinner and the believer lies in how the believer prioritizes those activities and the amount of time that he or she allows for participation. Intemperance in both time and priority denotes diminished folk spiritual focus, misplaced priorities, and an undisciplined manner of life, of which I suspect many of us are more or less guilty from time to time. So we are not proving. Anybody that's watching, trust me, there are people who are sinners or backsliders out of this church that I'm a part of here that knows more about what's going on in this church than I do. Because the lost watch. They observe. Why? One of two things. They're hoping, somewhere deep in them, they're hoping that all this is true so that they can find something real and be saved. But also they're looking to see if they can find a way to excuse them living like they live because you're not really who you say you are and you're not really living the way you say you do. You say, well, that's not fair on us. No, it's not fair on us. But it is fair because God doesn't expect you to live the way you're supposed to live through your own human ability and your own human will. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which, which worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I can't do it, but he can through me if I choose to let him. But he cannot do that in me against my will. So if I'm continuing this dual, double-minded, double-eye-sided, double-minded, double-spirited life, nothing positive comes out of a life like that. Nothing. Not only for the person that's living it, but for those that are close to that person and those that have any contact with that person. Why? Because they can't see the difference between them and that person. So there's no conviction. There's no drawing of the love of God. There's no saltiness, thirst created by associating with salt, which gives them desire. In Jesus' name, I pray that the Lord would help you and I today to truly come out from among that activity to give us an honest, humble spirit that is willing for God to say to us that that's it. that may not be wrong, but it, is it adding anything to you? Are you really growing in me, spending your time? I spend time doing those things. I invest time in God. When I say spend, when I spend something, I don't expect to get anything back for it except the momentary pleasure. I go into a restaurant, I buy a meal. When I finish that meal and get up, that money's gone. And the energy and all that from that meal will be gone in just a matter of hours. I spent that money. I spent it. It's gone. I spend money on entertainment and whatever. It's gone. It's gone. But I invest time in God. When you invest in something, there is... 
you're expecting to get something back. God invested in us. He expects to get back from that investment. And we invest in God and we get back something from that investment. It's not a, it's not a, a quid pro quo. It is, that's the way a relationship works. For electricity work to work, there has to be two wires. That's called a closed circuit. There has to be two wires. It has to go both ways for it to work. For your relationship and my relationship with God to work, I've got to have a connection going this way and a connection coming back from Him to me. Both connections have to be there. I have to be connected to Him so I can speak to Him, and I have to be connected to Him so He can speak to me. And if I have that connection, I will grow in Him. But that connection takes time to establish, to experience, to grow in, to understand, and to see his kingdom benefited from it and therefore me benefit from it also. In Jesus' name, I pray that we will let God work this in our lives. God bless you. Jesus' name.